In today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we are talking to journalist and freelancer Charlotte Moore about what value for money means to her. Welcome to the 30th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. I couldn't be happier as ever to be joined virtually by my co-host, Darren Phil. Hello, Darren. Hi, Vico. Have you gone all French? There was that series, wasn't uh, there? Hello, hello. Hello, um, hello. I, I, haven't, um, I haven't heard of hello, hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wasn't expecting that intro, but you're in France, aren't you? Uh, um, um, How's how, how that going? It's obviously wearing off on um, your intro to the podcast. Well, uh, yeah, I'm meeting a lot of British people out here, so I don't know about that. Maybe, maybe Aloha Aloha is a particularly uh, good example of that. Uh, but yeah, I'm drilling, drilling floors, sledgehammering stairs, all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, very, very good. How are you, Darren? Are you enjoying the, the Women's World Cup? I am, yeah. It was a great, um, great uh, game yesterday um, yeah. on, the, on the day of recording the podcast. Um, and yeah, looking forward to, to the final. Yeah, mm. let's, let's bring it home. Football is coming home, Nico. It is. It is. And obviously, it's great to be doing another podcast with you. Um, 30 episodes <laughs> plus four specials. 34 episodes, Nico. I know. You know, um, that's. We haven't uh, missed a week. We haven't, we haven't missed a week. We've done pretty well, haven't we? Yeah. But anyway, anyway, let's not ramble. Um, so, look, today we're delighted to be joined by multi award winning journalist and freelancer Charlotte Moore, uh, well known, of course, across the pension circles for uh, her extensive writing on investment and sustainability. Hello, Charlotte. Welcome Hi. to the FM. Hello. Well, I must admit, I'm finding it amusing that you're in France, Nico, since I remember years ago, you used to have a picture of you in a cravat on LinkedIn. I did. So it seems, seems only natural that you should be going back to where I consider one of the lands of cravat. <laughs> La cravate is obviously a French word, although I think the Brits probably embraced it more strongly than the French. Um, well, I understand it's actually a corruption of the word Croat. There we oh, go. There you go. <laughs> that, 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 that is a very special picture. And various people. So Greg absolutely hated it. Uh, Greg McClymon, when he was uh, public affairs manager, when he took over from you, Darren, yeah. uh, at, at TPP at BNCE. Um, and he just said it, it's literally the opposite of how I actually am and dress. And I've said that's why I like it so much. And uh, yeah, so there we go. <laughs> I think you've got a better. Um, you've got a picture now, haven't you? You've got a drawing. Yeah. Um, so I think it was IPE did a did an interview with me as CIO of the People's Pension, and uh, I mean the most flattering thing was that they sketched this sort of caricature crayon picture of me. So yeah, I've used that. Yeah. Um, so right. it won't age. It's like uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. It's the, uh, well, the opposite. It's it's, it's going to stay ageless as I get covered in kind of dust and and slowly deteriorate. But there we go. So Charlotte, I think we need to hashtag bring back the cravat, don't we? <laughs> yeah, just generally in life, not restricted to Nico alone, right? Uh, but it's and a good place to start. Yeah, enough with the super cash. Time to go super smart again. <laughs> Um, right, right. So, as ever, we start with the news. And um, Charlotte, um, we ask our guests to go first. So, what have you got for us? 
Well, since you've got a journalist on the show, I thought it would be more fun for the journalist to talk about what she's been writing about and for me to talk about myself on the third person, which is a bit weird. But, but you, yeah, make, so, you, make the, you make the news, don't you? Yes, so yeah. this is what exactly. will become the news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not sure I claim that because I'm more of, of a, an analysis and feature girl than a news girl. News is not really my, um, it's not really my thing. Hmm. I can do it, but under duress. But feature writing <laughs> and analysis is much more what I prefer. So I prefer to once the news is broken to think about what that actually means for different bits of the pensions industry yep. and um, investment is my first love, which you probably wouldn't be surprised by given that I was an investment analyst. Apparently there's stories about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger that what he really wants to do at the end of every day is go and lift iron because, you know, that's what he's done for his whole life. And in a sort of similar vein to Arnold Schwarzenegger, what I really like to write about is investment. Um, that's what makes me happiest, I have to say, and there's so many different angles to investment and how it feeds in and affects different mm -hmm. things. I do hope this is setting the tone for the rest of the podcast because we've managed to get um, um, investment, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, and analysis all within. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, you should I don't know have journalists on your show more frequently, Darren, as well. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> go on then, wait. So, 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 what, so what have you been so, writing about? So what I've been writing about two stories this year, really, or the year to date, I should say, has been fixed income. It's back, baby, big mm. style. So I'm in the middle of writing a couple of features, and I've just got, I have some great data from Morningstar for those features. And this is for ETFs alone, um, but it gives you an idea of what's been going on. So and we're talking about European domiciled fixed income. First seven months of the year was 39 billion euros compared to 14 billion for the same period last year. And that's an almost tripling of inflows. Mm -hmm. And perhaps more interestingly, it's kind of almost matching equity flows, which have always been higher than fixed income in the ETF world, because it's been, those products have been around for much longer. So we're yeah. at about 40 billion for equities for both this year and last year, for the first seven months. So I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And basically I've got sort of, quotes been talking to people about this from very dis different angles whether it's etfs or what multi-asset managers are doing and just everybody but everybody is rotating back into fixed income and it's basically like reintroducing a nice chocolate bar into a diabetic's diet you know everybody's just going after all this time where I haven't been able to use fixed income because it's been worth absolutely zero, I can finally put it back in my portfolio. Mm, yeah. I'm so pleased about that. And everybody's just been grabbing it, it feels like, with both hands and stuffing it back into their portfolios. And I think that's really interesting because it kind of pulls everything back to a world that we haven't seen for, I don't know, probably 15 years in terms of portfolio design. And it has all kinds of knock-on impacts. I think the, the jury is still out, you know. We've had this massive push. This brings me on to my second thing that I've been writing about, which is about UK growth mm. and the government going, oh, look, three trillion pounds. I can rate that and invest it in the economy because I can't bolster do anything else because I've left the European Union and, oh, dear, that's actually had a negative effect, which I'm not actually going to ever talk about. And mm -hmm. uh, I can't put any more of my public debt because that's already at crucifyingly high levels, not least of which because I have loads of index-linked bonds in there, and perhaps no, not loads, but enough to push up the bill as inflation rises. So, yeah, so that, that fixed income versus alternatives, I think, is a really interesting dynamic that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Yeah, and um, I think there was a report earlier in August, um, I certainly saw it on Pensions Expert, that Nesta looking to get back into um, in, 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 into gilts, having yeah. um, ignored it for a while. Yeah, I, I, did a, I did an interview with the new CEO, Liz Fernando, and she was saying that, you know, now we can own government bonds and we can actually get a decent yield on them. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 is this a short-term blip, Charlotte, or is this a, a another paradigm shift? Where, 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 we, where we are we on this in in your mind? Well, I mean, I, you know, that's the one of those sixty-four thousand million dollar questions that if I knew the answer to, I'd be very rich, because it all depends on what you think interest rates are going to do over the long, the medium to long term. I mean, there's also lots of little interesting punts going on that people think that, like in the G10, maybe with the exception of the UK we're close to an interest rate peak and that mm. obviously means that you are in a interesting scenario where you can actually use bonds to make capital gains it's not usually why you right. yeah. why you use them because as interest rates fall and prices rise you could obviously buy now sell later and you could do that you know literally by doing that or you can do that by increasing duration so there's all of that kind of stuff going on as well as tactical and strategic plays but i think there's an emerging consensus, and maybe Nico can tell me whether he agrees with this or not, that interest rates are likely to be higher for longer. And we don't think we're going to go back to the ultra-low rates that we have seen from the last 15 years. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I was actually uh, discussing this with my partner <laughs> last night um, uh, on the basis that we've just... As you do. Yeah, so, well, we got a five-year fixed mortgage Um going on a year ago so we 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 timed it incredibly well um and uh therefore in four years time will interest rates be at a place where the interest rate goes up uh is it possible that it stays the same is it even plausible that it goes down and obviously will have it's a um capital repayment mortgage so with you know our loan to value absent the house price moves should be lower so yeah I, i i i could make a case for them going back to below uh, inflation again. Um, I think there's two separate arguments. So one is essentially, will they stay higher than they have been for the last, since the global financial crisis? Um, and then the other is, could we actually get back to a world where we have real interest rates? <laughs> where you're actually, you know, not penalized for keeping your money in a bank account uh, versus inflation, um, which is sort well, of how um, I was taught it and remember it in the 80s and 90s, right? Well, there are people out there that are arguing that inflation is likely to prove higher than it has in the past, mm. um, that you are more likely to have more inflation spikes than you have done in the past. And there are, you know, there are good sort of sound um, global macroeconomic reasons for that, because obviously a lot of the low inflation was caused by China industrializing and globalization. And now it seems like we're sort of on a trend to undo globalization and move back towards protectionism. You've got, I mean, there's some really interesting big long-term trends that I kind of feel people haven't sort of talked mm. about, but haven't really sort of considered the implications of deglobalization is one of them, and the green transition is another. But the, the the one that I feel that people really don't think about, and that from us in pensions think about all the time, and that's the aging population. Yeah, just absolutely. The yeah. level of stress that that is going to place on the global economy is just going to be in a way that we haven't really foreseen before, and the only continent in the world where birth rates are growing is, is in Africa. But The Economist wrote an article recently about how even those growth rates are falling. Yeah. Mm. So, 
and that's that's i just don't know how you know how those three major factors are going to yeah. reshape the global economic growth i i'm not sure well, there's well, been I enough thinking up, about that yet to be it, honest it, in my uh, discussions about interest rates, mortgage rates in four years' time, I mean, I, I, I would focus on that demographic piece. Um, you know, ageing as a society is disinflationary. Uh, it results in capital excesses being stored in cash and therefore it is reducing interest rates as well. Um, a lot of people argue that the, uh, you know, the experience we've had in the last 15 years, you know, since, since the global financial crisis, is really built on top of a kind of big monetarist trends of reducing interest rates from the mid mid eighties, um, and you know really kind of getting to a point where that demographic trends just sort of shifted tectonic plates. There was an earthquake in interest rates, as opposed to it being zerp and uh, deliberate stimulation of inflation. Although it was obviously a part of that. So yeah, I could. I mean, four years is is too short a period probably for that to really push it. But I could see us having negative interest rates in in our you know near-term future in the 30s um and what i think is really interesting is what happens with inflation um mm. which could be all over the place yeah. um so yeah and, and, yeah, and that's a, that's a view that's been expressed to me that inflation is going to be all over the place because mm. of the green transition and because of deglobalization really and i think well, um, and, and things like brexit um, yeah. Movements for Britain in particular. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to say that the thing that's really interesting for me from an economic perspective is you've got these global changes. Yeah, and um, we don't know where they're going to go. Um, we might have a bit of an idea, um, but how out of kilter um, will the UK be? Um, mm. And when I say by um, out of kilter, I don't mean sort of uh, necessarily um, the opposite. I mean, uh, will some of the impacts of these global trends be exacerbated massively? Um, just because of um, where we are as a country, uh, Brexit is a key is a key thing, um, but also you know um, um, you know forging a new path in the world. Uh, well, I mean, and, and of course, the point is the reality of that is that you have now got you've got the US and in the developed world, you've got US and Europe that are both pursuing more protectionist routes yeah. and mm -hmm. pursuing massive investment programs into green technology whether it's the IRA in the US or the European plans to do that. And the UK is like just a middle country sitting between the two of them. Yep. And it's no longer a member of the EU and can no longer shape or write all of the financial regulations of the EU, which it did do for, for a long time. So, I mean, I think this is not supposed to be a political podcast, but... You know, well, you could be. That's fine. But, you know, well, my, Darren and I attempt to be neutral. My my assessment well. of that is, you know, that, that all of those forces mean that we will eventually rejoin the EU because it's just going to be too painful to be on the outside. Mm -hmm. so, that's that's uh, my long term view as well. Um, yeah. but, but but the trouble is, I think um, we never had it so good when we were in the EU. Mm -hmm. Things like the rebate and um, carving out of, uh, well, to, of very, to be, you know, yeah. like, but blimey, you know, they'll make us pay if we want to go back in. <laughs> well, the counter to that is, you know, all you need is a nice, good, long period in the economic wilderness to, to grab at Schengen, and I really don't care about the pound anymore. Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. And I think um, that will happen. But anyway, yeah, anyway. I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, just the other thing to put in, because Charlotte, you talked about, uh, you put UK growth into the mix here. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So the sort of inward investment discussion, and then the mansion house compact. Yeah, there was a there was a whole series of mansion house reforms, of which mm. one was a compact, which basically nine of the kind of leading pension providers said that they would 
they would aim to invest about 5% of their total assets in unlisted equities by 2030. So this was a photo opportunity of people signing a document with, with the Chancellor, yeah? Is that the one mm. you're talking about? Well, that's yeah. possibly even more cynical than me, Darren, but yes. <laughs> I mean, but I think but that, you know, you talk about UK growth, to just sort of pick up on what you're talking about there. I mean, the whole sort of like debate in, in the months leading up to the actual Mansion House reforms, there were all kinds of proposals put forward by various different political actors. Um, and basically, uh, ironically enough, the Conservatives went for the sort of Labour proposal of a, of a you know, a £50 billion pot of money that mm. be invested in growth assets, which is what the compact aims to do by 2030. Mm. And there were some like, you know, some suggestions that pension schemes should be forced to invest in growth assets. And some people have said to me that they, that they think that is correct. They should be forced. Other people have said not. Other people said that, you know, countries, other countries around the world do it. Why shouldn't we? Um, and the particularly sort of like really crazy, crazy suggestions of Tony Blair, which I think I can, or Tony Blair Institute, I should say, which basically showed a sort of like fundamental lack of understanding of the complexity of the world of UK pensions, where basically let's shove everything into the PPF, I think is the neat summation of that, of that yeah. proposal, which which the PLSA had a collective sort of nervous breakdown over and talked about <laughs> moral hazards and the like, you know, it was yeah. very strong language for them, not often that you see the PLSA talk about moral hazards. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, it was, and I think there was a education process that went on from the original, oh, three trillion pot of money, let me get my yeah. hands into that, to, well, actually, you know, it's really quite complicated and, you know, there's absolutely no incentive for DB schemes to take on risky assets right now, especially, I mean, there hasn't been for years, but right right now there isn't because, oh, look, liabilities are falling and they could actually do buyout or, you know, have self-sufficiency. They're not going to, they're not going to do that. And do you really want to wind back all of the gold-plated inflation-linked promises mm. you've made to members in order to introduce some more risk? Well, good luck mm. with that, I think mm. is my best my best advice on that so and you know let's be honest uk growth is an idea but realistically no pension scheme is going to really invest heavily in just one region it's going mm -hmm. to if it is going to do enlisted equity whether that's venture capital or private equity you can make arguments for i think fairly convincing arguments for why you should go down that route despite the expense getting access to more of the investable universe because so many companies are private rather than public um, you're going to want to do that. It's high risk. You're going to want to do that on a diversified basis, and diversifying across the globe is one way you diversify those risks. So, mm -hmm. so there's all of that up in the air, and I feel like you know, government sort of like came to grips with all of that. So it did end up being a little bit of a damp squib from you know the kind of UK growth perspective, but probably a step in the right direction if we're going to be thinking about value for money. Mm -hmm. So you like yeah. that segue, Darren? That was, that was pretty good, actually. Um, <laughs> although I'm going to segue to us because we've got to get through all of the different news, yes. Um, so <laughs> so we'll, yeah, hold that thought, Charlotte. I'll, yeah. segue, I'll yeah. segue to a cliff edge. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm going to do my news piece now. Yeah? Go on. Um, just because then I'm in control of moving us on. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, of I'm, control is a powerful I'm, one. I, I, I'm, yeah, putting, yeah. I'm putting my foot down. Um, so I was interested um, in some uh, a, a piece of news um, that popped up in professional pensions from um, a website called Alt-Fi. 
um, or alt fee. And this is about Monzo. Uh, Monzo digital bank plots move into retirement savings. So, and, and they call Monzo a UK neobank. So this is very fintech-y type language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Monzo, you know, um, I've got a Monzo account. It's great. Um, and that's not even sponsored. Um, announced that it has, um, it's, it's, it's got seven and a half million customers, uh, but it's hiring a new exec for its pensions business. Um, you know, there's a job out for advert out there um, to within its savings and investment division. Um, to, 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 to lead and develop its uh, pension proposition and to grow into that market. Um, and I just think this is quite interesting because um, I've always thought that, you know, when some of these disruptor banks and, and actually um, some of the, the big finance, uh, the, the big tech companies really get interested in pensions, that's when we'll start seeing, you know, quite a big shakeup um, and, and it will change the face of, um, you know, our pension system. Really? And, yeah, do you really I do. think that, Darren? No, I do think that. Is that because... is that all a bit 2012 when we thought robo advice was a great idea? When I thought what? Sorry. When we all thought robo advice was a great idea. No, I don't, because I think that you know, like I, I, I think that we are so far behind when it comes to thinking about consumer experience and engagement and just making life really, really easy for people. I, I get all of that, but let's, the, 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 be realistic. let's be realistic. Most people who have pensions do it through their occupational work scheme, right? They do. They and do. that is the line. I know we have a wealth market in this in this country, but but when you're talking about, you know, the big numbers, the big numbers are all in occupational pensions. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, so, I mean, for a bank to offer a pension, isn't that all a bit European? I mean, you know, and I mean that in the well, way that go, the way go, it's you know the UK is much more disintermediated than it yeah. is in Europe, where you get every financial service from the back. Yeah, but we just had a conversation about wanting to be more European. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that segue? <laughs> Charlotte, I am this loving is, having so, you on the show because yeah, yeah. like, you're making all the points that I would make. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty cynical <laughs> about this. No, as well. so so. Um, I, I, but I, but I, just I, as Darren, I, so, so so just it, we assume this will be the sort of retail channel. Yeah, you, we assume they're not going to go and buy. A master trust, right? Um, well, we did have NatWest um, mm. pick up Cushion, didn't we? But I mean, they've got a lot more cash than Monzo. Yeah, you'd, you'd think. <laughs> I mean, Cushion was 180 something million, wasn't it, for 85 percent of the equity? It was something so, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, and Cushion is not a huge master trust. I know it's no. got a bigger kind of advisory wealth platform, or non-advisory wealth platform. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, they would need to raise equity to go and make an acquisition. So presumably this is meant to be organic growth in a quite competitive market. Mm. Yeah, but I think um, um, it's the integration um, that is missing. So, so you know, we, we had uh, Romy on. From yeah, that, and that is a very European banking model that yeah. you basically yeah. manage all of the wealth of your clients. And yeah. we, we don't I, have that model so much in the UK. But it doesn't we mean really to say don't. that we won't get there. And I'm not saying it's going to take over the world because I think that, um, you know, ultimately, you know, the vast majority of the assets are going to be through the workplace. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that course has been set. Um, but, you know, Pensions B have done all right. Yeah. Whether you like their model or not, you know, they have, have built a, a really good, strong customer base, you mm-hmm. know, and they're growing. Yeah. Yeah, but um, they are called pensions B. They're not called Monzo with a bit of retirement on the side. Well, it, it is a yeah, USP, sure and they had a very 
and they had a very strong communications method and they've always been very good on social media and all the rest of it and they did that for years and years and years yeah and and you look at monzo's social media and monzo's social media is excellent so as soon as they Mm. get interested in pensions then i think it's going to be you know and and i think it's about that disruption so i think you know we we often talk about retail versus institutional or retail versus workplace yeah you know and quite often that gets into a pensions b versus workplace type of discussion even if it's not sort of explicitly said so yeah and i think that you know like more integrated finance remember we've got the dashboard come in whereby you know um people are just wanting to have a one-stop shop yeah whether that's an amalgamated dashboard type thing or whether it's um going through one provider is going to interest a proportion of the market isn't the downside of that what we saw with dc and annuities right before freedom of choice came in and that everybody just bought their annuity from their pension provider yep. and never shopped around. Yep. So it's the downside that you actually get a worse customer experience because you're in a bank and then you get your SIP through your bank and you haven't bothered to actually shop around or talk to a financial advisor about what you would want, what you need, what your goals are. Yeah, but you could you could you could argue that in the workplace space. So but, so uh, uh, equally because you know if you look at uh, well I agree I agree with that and I agree that you know that, it, <laughs> that the current model we have creates all kinds of lots of issues you get tiny little pension pots which and you don't have a pension pot for the member you yep. you don't have you can't choose your provider but then if you choose your provider I mean in Australia well, you have a different system where you have six superannuation fees situate superannuation funds and they all compete but you know. The flip side of that argument is you can get to lower common denominator very quickly where you have a load of master trusts that are just going to compete on tr- on money yeah. and that is just cost rather than value for money. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. saying it's the right thing. I just think that it will be a bit of a shake-up as pensions may have been a shake-up. Well, yeah, in, what, so... in the same way that RoboAdvice was a shake-up, right? So well, sorry. let's uh, the RoboAdvice. So let's... Oh, let's well. um, so I, I, I look at this from a business perspective I think about uh, market acquisition. I think that's going to be tough. I think about uh, the sunk costs of building out the administration platform and all of that customer experience you just referenced. Um, and I think about return on capital. And it would surprise me that they would target pensions ahead of, and you say there's in the sort of investment and savings division. Mm-hmm. So that kind of broader investment and savings piece, yeah, I, would, yeah. I would think is kind of richer field first. So if they're going down that route, presume, I, I would have thought it's a roadmap type piece mm. um and uh there's you know at a stage with their savings and investment um proposition where they're going okay so we should be thinking about two three years hence whether there's product we need to be developing mm. um because it is not the biggest job title uh in in the world it's 70 to 100 grand which i know everywhere outside of the city of london is 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 a, a good high salary but that's not uh, gonna gonna attract unfortunately the kind of tier one directors of uh, providers I would have thought um, but good luck to them you know I, I, I would say well, from a competitive perspective he's been shot down claims by two people now well, <laughs> no I don't think I have but I I, 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 I I fight my corner on this because all yeah, I'm yeah. saying is I think it's an interesting move yeah and I think that you know the retail space in particular will evolve over time yeah right mm-hmm. and I think that the workplace sector can sometimes come across as being a bit too lazy, yeah, and not innovative enough, yeah. And, um, you know, at the moment, you've got in- the incumbency, yeah, of the workplace sector. You've got the scale, 
yeah but you rest on your laurels and you know you might end up regretting it and i think um you know we we need to do more in the workplace so i don't know i'm always you know coming from a work but i don't i don't think that's the narrative actually darren so i think it's competition with pensions b i think it's competition with hargreaves lansdowne yeah, yeah. we had on the show it's competition with uh aj bell and sjp right it's not competition with with you know the people's pension and the mercer master trust uh, it will dribble some of that yeah but it's actually about winning people who've already got into the retail world that that will be you know i it would i would think it's a very big Bold decision, let's put it. And there's a consolidation If your if your business idea is that you're going to get persuade people to opt out of their workplace pension to opt yeah. into you, well, good luck with that. Because we know that the whole point of auto enrollment was inertia and everything that's happened since we've introduced auto enrollment from opt out fees and even opt out rates during a cost of living crisis shows that that inertia is absolutely rock solid. Yeah, yeah. Shall yeah. I put my hand on the tiller and take control and move us on to my new story? Why don't you, Nico? Well, yeah. that's something left of Darren's ego. It, it, this may be as controversial, <laughs> I don't know. We shall see. Um, so I wanted to pick out a story in, it's a magazine I don't, I don't subscribe to, Benefits Canada. There we go. 43% uh, of USDC pension plan sponsors offer auto escalation. Um, so it's the results of a survey. There's a number of different uh, other other questions that I've got. They're quite an interesting kind of series of, of data points. But I wanted to pick on the auto escalation point. Um, for me, this was one of the kind of core behavioral finance platforms uh, that you know came out with the kind of uh, Thaler, maybe Bernatzi kind of consensus as to how we should be addressing uh, uh, you know inertia in pension savings. And I think. Um, uh, uh, Shlomo Bernatzi kind of called this smart, so save more tomorrow. Mm. Um, and but when we went through auto enrollment, we kind of dropped this out of the kind of uh, lexicon of of kind of DC pension uh, innovations, um, which to me was always a bit of a shame, right? So um, you know, uh, you know, there's a big reason why that happened. I mean, it was a lot to do with what the CBI wanted. In terms of well, well, but hang on, so because so, 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 this has come onto Darren's controversy as well, right? So, um, which is a, it's very <laughs> different from what you what you put into auto enrolment legislation versus what employers offer, um, because plenty of employers offer a whole bunch of stuff that they're not forced to. Um, they see that as part of their competitive strategy, so like death benefits, for instance. Mm. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I put this in place for Barclays um, uh, in two thousand and ten. Um, so Barclays had a matching contribution scheme. Plenty of employers have matching contribution schemes, admittedly not because of auto-enrollment and because they're probably at sort of in, in particularly competitive markets. Uh, but I put on a choice on the form which said, essentially, and using loss aversion, if you can't you know, take advantage of Barclays' contributions, you're missing out, but here is a box you can tick, which means next year it'll go to 1%, next year after that it'll be 2 a uh, year after that it'll be at 3% and the full match. So those kinds of structures I just haven't seen kind of since auto-enrollment, maybe this kind of uh, rush you know to the how, bottom you know, of the barrel. Do you, do you have any data on that, on whether it was successful or not? Uh, well, so uh, Barclays promptly closed the plan, so uh, it was zero uh, percent successful. So, what was really interesting is that they closed the first. They did it in two steps. So, they closed the um, the DB scheme to uh, existing members and moved them into the DC scheme. Uh, and so, uh, this was a non-contributory defined benefit scheme. So, when they moved DC uh, people into the DC plan who had been, you know, potentially. 
20, 30, 40 years of Coral in the DB plan, uh, they didn't want the shock of the contributions. So actually, they put everyone onto that auto escalation. Um, so that was probably 15, 20,000 people. Um, so maybe I smoothed the, the, the rails towards the closure of a DB plan. Uh, if so, that is to my infinite regret. Um, but uh, yeah, and then in terms of members themselves, like DC kind of pure members, we had about 500 uh, members who kind of picked it up in our first wave, um, which was okay. I mean, my main push was actually to see it it's it's kind of how you bias it. So if you if you say it's binary, you are either doing this thing which is brilliant or you're not, and that's terrible. Then giving people a mid option actually enables them to see that it's possible for them to do the brilliant thing, and they start to think it a bit more more clearly in terms of their finances. So actually, the inclusion of the auto escalation, we did have data which said it helped people go straight to the top of the matching contribution because um, it enabled them also to do it to 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 see that there were steps in between. Um, so yeah, I think overall it's successful, but it was just part of the armory, um, and and you know it seems to be something that's been dropped out of the the tool shop for others. So so love the idea of auto escalation it makes a lot of sense, um, but surely it only works at employer level, doesn't it? Like how can you yeah. have a, a system wide um, auto escalation principle when it is all reliant on you know things like pay increases or promotions or, or can you just like make it can you make it system wide that all pay increases and promotions must come with auto escalation you can but that's a hell of can an intervention like, to your cbi point you know the cbi argued very very strongly in return for support for auto enrollment that that three percent level of employer contribution was on the face of the bill you know yeah, exactly. um, and you know that was a you know, going back to when Neil, this was happening at the time of the Pensions Commission, you know, there was a hell of a negotiation between the government, the employer bodies, and the unions, you know, to build that consensus. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, uh, that will have to be revisited at some point. Um, but I mean, if you, if you link auto escalation to to salary rises, and this point that Steve Webb has always made to me is that if you're going to add people more money to people's pension. You've got to make sure that they don't feel poor, right? Because then you just yeah, trigger yeah. loss aversion. Yeah. So if you if you link auto escalation always to salary rises, or you know that you can opt in uh, for whatever reason you want, um, I think that takes a lot of the sting away from it. Oh, I, in I, terms mean, of, I agree. It, from a political perspective, from it, it takes a lot of the sting away from it. Um, from the employer perspective, you know, it's not that much extra money. I mean. I just, I think what's really interesting, given all of this, is, is what the IFS is doing at the moment, that they've got a two-year pensions policy review going on. And they've identified, I think it's seven different areas. And it's about, you know, what's wrong with the current system, what needs to improve. There's a whole sort of bit about at retirement, auto escalation is also in there. They've got a dare turner back on on the case. I mean, it's, an, it's a really interesting it's interesting to me that that's happening now and they're doing it now as a independent think tank that's obviously basically looking to develop pension policy for what they believe to be an incoming Labour government, right? So I think that it's going to, that you're right, that it's something that needs to be done. And you, I mean, in the States, even auto enrollment is done on a company by company basis. It's not yeah. mandated at a, at a, at a federal level, which I think is bonkers, but you know, that's America for you. Um, and you know, we have the benefit of auto enrollment being in 
UK legislation and we just we need to we you know the point about auto enrollment is that we've built the foundation of a good house and we now need to build the extra floors yeah, and the extra yeah. floors inclu include getting savings levels to 16% at least rather than 8% because 8% yeah. is not going to get otherwise you're going to have all impoverished generation. Yeah. Although, yeah. although I would challenge the sixteen percent because mm -hmm. you know, for some people, that would mean oversaving. Yeah. Um, so, so Fair I think we, uh, but, so, you know, as but, a broad, as a broad target. Yeah, yeah. For, for an average, for an average earner, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you're you're hundred percent right. But I think the, that points yeah, to the need for that. more sophisticated ways of getting people to the right point. Just mm -hmm. a sort of general increase in contributions across the board is probably not the way to go. Uh, yeah, but we yeah. Do, you say that, but then we we kind of do need to have general contributions across the board because generally people aren't saving enough. So there needs to yeah. be it needs to be well, UK so, wide. So we, we have had we did have some form of auto escalation through the legislation, right? So let's let's not forget that we had the stepping up. What has happened is that the government has lost its nerve over hitting any sort of target. I think auto escalation is a nice halfway house where yeah. you say essentially you. Uh, employees should decide essentially, and I, I eight percent is too low, right? We need to step that up. But beyond that, um, you know, maybe auto escalation is something you could put onto the statute books. Give them enough time for Sage and the others to, on the payroll basis, to to actually put in the systems to make it work. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it can't be overnight, but you know, we had what four years to prepare for auto enrollment. So there's no reason we couldn't kind of work our way into a basis where people could, you know. Employers would have to have a matching contribution but, uh, beyond the the three percent that they make now, which is kind of but, shockingly low, but, but, um, and and a, and a mechanism for people to do it, you know, over over years. But I think the thing for me, Nico, is the lead time on something like this. Absolutely, and, and this is why you know we end up talking, we end up going round circles, yeah, and doing more and more analysis on the optimal level of contribution, could also iteration work, all of that type of stuff, right? There's never a right time to implement some of this stuff. There's always going to be a reason not to. But a lot of it um, depends on the plumbing, you mm -hmm. know. So um, having a, 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 a good high-level direction of travel set out, yeah, in terms of, okay, payroll industry or pension schemes or employers or whoever, you know, this is the direction of travel. You've been warned that this is coming, yeah, um, make sure that you can deliver this type of stuff. You know, that's got to be something that, you know, that general sort of setting of direction piece needs to happen sooner rather than later. But isn't that, but that's, I mean, all they have to do is replay what they did with auto-enrollment because auto-enrollment started with the largest employers and, you know, Steve Wolf was candid about that. He said, we started mm -hmm. with the largest employers because we knew it would force all of the administrators to figure out how to do this before... Yeah. If you'd started with the smallest, you'd put far too much a burden on them. So basically, by the time you got round to staging the small employers, the large employers have already solved the problem. So we have to do is a rerun of that. Should we? I'm very conscious of our one-hour promise, and we're we're radically behind <laughs> on that. Right. How did you um, get into pensions, Charlotte? How did you get yeah. into pensions? How did I get into pensions? Um, so I started when I started freelancing. The first people I used to work for was the States Gazette. It was back in the commercial commercial property boom days of 2006. And well, um, I basically kind of stalked the the editor of Financial Director magazine because he was <laughs> an ex-investment analyst. And I got some work from him. And they used to do supplements on pensions. So I started writing about that. And then I thought, hmm, pensions, lots of money, not going anywhere. That'd be a good area to specialise. And then I basically kind of 
I, you know, a few friendly PRs basically introduced me to different editors of different pensions magazines, and that's where I've been happily swimming for the last sort of 15 years or so. Wow. And so when you say not going anywhere, <laughs> you meant you meant in terms of people will always have pensions as opposed to well, like, I, I, actually I try happening. To, yeah, I might, I kind of like the thing that I always try and pick sectors that are, you cannot have some level of economic um, resistance, right? So when I was mm. an investment analyst, I covered the pharmaceutical sector. Mm. You know, sick people need drugs no matter what the economy. And my feeling around pensions was the trillion, three trillion in assets not going to disappear anytime soon. So that's a nice, safe, stable sector that's not going to come and go at the whims of the economic mm -hmm. cycle. That was my analysis. Very it's accurate. A, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, and, and, and just a quick question on your career so far. Like, you know, like being a freelance journalist, you must have met a lot of people, yeah, yes. and um, written a lot of stories and stuff. Like, you know, what's, what's been the story you, you're most proud of? Mm. Um. I don't think, well, there's a couple of answers to that question. I wrote about the self, you know, basically how hard it is for self-employed people to have pensions hmm. long before it became sexy. They need a monzo. They need a monzo. And so basically <laughs> I wrote, I started writing stuff about that. I can't even remember. I think it was like 2000, it's a long time ago. And I got the ONS to give me all, I did a whole sort of, data dive through the ONS in terms of, you know, who are the self-employed and which trades are represented and all that kind of stuff, which I found really useful. Um, so I wrote about that a long time. And obviously I have skin in the game in that, being self-employed. And now obviously that is one of the big focus points and it's been raised several times. And it's one of the focus points of the IFS uh, policy document that I mentioned, you know, the fact that they have done quite a lot of work in the IFS basically as the employed have their participation in occupational pension schemes through autumn enrollment has shot through the roof and it has declined massively amongst the self-employed. Mm. Um, then kind of, it's more bodies of work rather than sort of specific articles. So I'm very proud of, and this was, an, I wrote for my website kind of to just establish myself. I wrote a whole sort of what I call pensions landscape. Mm -hmm. And it's a series of blog posts that basically look at how the pensions UK policy landscape developed from post World War Two. I missed out a huge chunk that was all about the backwards and forwards between the Tory and the Labour government fiddling around with state pensions because that's kind of irrelevant nowadays. Um, but that has been very, very useful in sort of just giving me a lot of background knowledge that I find really helpful and I could refer people back to. And then I did a similar thing when I wanted to really establish myself as a sustainable investment expert. So I have a whole series of articles about sustainable investment that go from you know what is it and what are the tools and how do you actually implement it as an institutional investor and what are the things that shape how you invest sustainably depending on whether you're a dc fund or an open db fund or a closed mm. db fund and mm. the way you can invest sustainably differs and, very much for those three and, different types of pension schemes and quick plug what's the website the website is lotsmore.co.uk and you need to go to the insights page and you'll find all of those blogs. And it's really good. Yeah, it looks nice as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Taryn. That's all right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Charlotte, what does value for money mean to you? So as I alluded to before, value for money basically means that we should ensure our occupational pension schemes provide the best possible outcome. 
Um, and I think that's very important for the UK because we have always seen, unlike other European countries, the state pension as a way to keep people out of penury rather than a replacement income. Yeah. And that goes all the way back to beverage and even before that. We've always had that point of view. So occupational pensions are key to make sure that people can retire and actually have a, a happy, healthy retirement. The first iteration of SERPs was pretty generous. OK, if you say so. But the general philosophy behind state pensions has never been to be, to have a replacement income. No. Well, I told you that's the no. bit I messed out yeah. in my, because, you know, it went backwards and forwards so much, yeah, and then yeah. we just replaced it all with a flat state pension at the edge of auto enrolment. Yeah, yeah. So mm. that's what I think. And realistically, if we're talking about occupational and we're talking about current population, then that means making sure that DC provides value for money. And I think on the investment piece, to go back to the UK growth and the mansion house reforms and the compact goes goes back to some work that Nico did for the DCIF. I can't remember when it was, Nico. Was it 2013, 16? I can't even remember. Depends which piece. Then. No, so 16, 17, I, I first, uh, yeah, so I was at Towers Watson before that. So um, it would have been 16, 17. Yeah, so you did this big report. You did this analysis mm. of what the big master trusts were investing in. And basically, mm. I remember, I still remember the graph. There's one graph. And it shows that basically all of these big pension providers have about, I don't know, 60, 70, even 80% of their funds invested in passive equities. Yep. yep. Now, not to reopen a whole sort of passive versus active equity debate on the show because we want to stick to an hour, but you know, <laughs> passive equities is great. It has its place, especially if you consider that at the moment there are seven US stocks that yep. make up, that contribute more than, I think it's UK, France, and Japan. Great chart that Duncan Lamont put on LinkedIn recently. Right. He's somebody you should have on the show, by the way. Duncan Lamont does great, great stuff. Um, and so, you know, that sort of is a very pro argument in favor of passive equity, but that you need to have more than that. It needs to be more diversified. It needs to be more intelligent. It should be more target date fund led. It should shift, you know, through time and yeah, as we've got the freedom and choice, etc. all of that. So it's kind of getting away from cost as a proxy for value and focusing people back on to, at the very minimum, returns net of fees. Mm, yeah. Or maybe we need something, you know, less kind of financially geeky than that, but just the idea that you are trying to do the best and you're going to provide some kind of diversified portfolio that's going to give you some protection through years like, for example, 2022, when both equities and fixed income fell like a stone. Mm. Target date funds. We haven't really had a proper discussion of target date funds on this podcast, have we, Nico? No, no. Um, I mean, to me, it was always a solution for American administration problems because they got to find contribution before computers. Um, and <laughs> because DC was, you know, 15 years later, we, you know, our servers could do live styling, no problem. Um but, well, you say uh, that, but you know, but is is there a you know like is one better than the other, or is it just an administration? It's administration. I mean, if you look at so uh, you know, there's a lot of um, what's the word? I'm trying not to say lies. Um, so there's a lot of overmarketing, I think, of what the TDF managers are doing. Misunderstandings. No, I think overmarketing. So, so, so I remember I had, uh, and I won't name the particular very well known investment bank. Um, 
in uh, when I was at Towers Watson trying to launch their TDF range in the UK and they said you know active management of asset allocation is very important and I said yes it is uh, and they said we do active management around these perimeters and I said in 2013 or 14 brilliant because the case study of the global financial crisis must show me how much value you added you must have a trace of how your asset allocation changed in those choppy waters of you know 2007 through 11 or whatever you want to they showed me this trace they did nothing absolutely nothing they just kind of stay to strategic allocation weights and you're like okay but you're 44 45 basis points you've got passive content i could i could even in those days you know kind of wrap this together for 15 so your 30 bits of dynamic asset allocation you're just that's in your pocket is it so yeah i i, I get the theory um i think in practice there's there's a sort of closet tracking world that that the americans have in right, tdfs okay. Right. Well, this is not the particular discussion I want to get down into TDFs or not TDFs. But my point was, you know, a more general one about creating basically diversification within people's portfolios and considering what they're going to do with their money to and through retirement was my was my point Mm -hmm. in a freedom of choice world, given that we're not going to cliff edge them all into fixed income. or We weren't. Maybe we are now. Bonds are back, baby. Maybe we should cliff edge them all into fixed income and them to walk out and buy annuities and discuss but you know that at least we could avoid talking about cdc that way but um, <laughs> but you know there is an emerging consensus that, that you use your annuities maybe for later on in life later on in your retirement i should say when the longevity risk really kicks in yeah so so you, it's, it's about that that's for me what value for money means it means making sure your portfolio is designed is fit for purpose not only when you're accumulating but also when you're de-accumulating terrible words i know terrible pension worth but when you're building your wealth and then when you're spending your wealth that your pension pot is built and you're not putting the onus back onto the individual at the most inopportune moment and expecting people at retirement to manage their longevity investment risk so, with absolutely yeah. no skills in that area at all so, 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 so two things I'd like to pick up on there. One um, is the skills point, yeah, and how you get the right people into the right product or mix of products at the right time, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily an investment problem. It's a choice architecture problem, yeah. yeah? Um, so be interested. And a complexity problem. And a complexity problem and, and a regulatory problem, you know, and we've mm-hmm. got the DWP yeah. consulting on our retirement frameworks and all of that type of stuff. Um, so, you know, how do we crack that? Because you can have the best investment solutions in the world, yeah, uh, but if you don't crack that, you just got people in the wrong investments, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so interested in your views on that, Charlotte. Also interested in your views on the balance of... Um, Let's call it the investment in the investment, yeah. Like between, and we've talked about this before, Nico, on this podcast, which is you know admin versus investment and spend, um, you know, on admin versus spending on investment. And you know, do you think schemes are actually spending enough on the investment propositions from 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 your observations, in terms of you know once you know what you're targeting, they are targeting that effectively. Um. So the first one, so what exactly are you trying to get at the first point about choice architecture? What does that mean in the real world? Well, it means how do you get the right people into the um, right product or mix of products at the right time? So, you know, DB, you just, you know, you, you, you retire, um, you get your paycheck on the Monday. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like how do we how do we help? Because because you know we we could we could we could all go down the CDC route. Yeah, um, if we're not going to go down the CDC route or give or default people into at retirement options, we're going to have to have people making choices. I think yeah. you need to default people into at retirement options. I think that's I think that's the problem. You need you've got a paternalistic system, and then it's a completely unpaternalistic system mm-hmm. when you hit retirement. And the idea that you know the idea that people are going to go out and pay fifteen hundred pounds for financial advice is for the birds. You survey yeah. people. They say they'll pay to be prepared to pay one hundred and fifty pounds. I think it is, or maybe three hundred pounds. Right. But that's it. So. I think you need to be, a, it's the, the choice architecture, as you'd like to put it. I think it's just really simple. I think you just, you default people into an retirement choice. And like you do with the default uh, but, funds, do you, so, do, you so, try, do you try and design the best fund for them? Do you, and if, they, if so, they're wealthy enough, they need to go and consult with a financial advisor and see if that's the right thing for them or not. So, so do you default people into an retirement option? Yeah, with a, with a clear path that is set. Or you, what you said was you default people into an at retirement choice, yeah. No, I meant an option. You meant an option. So, so you, you, you would, you would argue, and I don't disagree with this. Um, you would argue that um, a provider should sort of have a have a set out approach, yeah. That is maybe a soft default for people that you know has, uh, you know, is 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 designed and is suitable for the vast majority of the members. You know, which will have some flexibility. We'll assume people will take the tax-free lump sum, for example. You know, we'll have some drawdown, um, some managed drawdown to keep the fund above a certain level, um, and then we'll guarantee stuff after age seventy-five. You know, and yeah. then and then if people wanted to jump out of that, yeah, then um, ultimately that's where you would sort of push them down the route of a financial advisor. Yeah. Well, but you need you need more. You need you need some halfway houses. Yeah, yeah, people, yeah, people will be able to go like actually you know i need it before the state pension kicks in i don't yeah. need it you know i don't need any income now and that's I what i mean by choice architecture yeah i exactly. mean the, the only thing that, that that you know thinking about it on the hoof as we're talking about i i think that is that well, that's certainly an awful lot better solution than we have at the moment but to go back to my point about annuities is that when we had annuities people would just buy the annuity that their provider provided rather than shopping around yeah so I don't know if you need to introduce at some stage, say to people, you have the option to carry on with your provider, but we would strongly advise you to shop around and see if you can find a better at retirement solution. But I mean, the problem with that is with an annuity, you know what you're buying, you're buying an income stream. Are people going to be able to be able to decide what at, at, what at retirement product they need? I don't think people knew what they were buying when they were buying an annuity. You know, I think well, yeah, because uh, loads of people didn't buy inflation-linked annuities, and they should have done, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So, but 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 I think that's I think that's right. You, you've you've hit the nail on the head, uh, which is you know, to optimize outcomes, to 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 to, to you know, to, to deliver what people might want and need, there has to be an element of choice in this. Um, if you don't, if you just have, um, if you just go down the default path. Then you know how do you stop people getting ripped off? Well, uh, I think I think that the answer to that is you have to regulate it, right? Yeah. In that you have to ensure you have to agree some standards around that at retirement product that everybody needs to comply with. But I don't yeah. know what that is. I'm not enough of a technical expert to even begin to address that. But I think that's. I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to finance, we always always end up relying on regulation. Always. I mean, it yeah. is one of the most heavily regulated sector industrial sectors there is. Because if you don't, we end up with cryptocurrency, right? Basically, and it's cowboy yeah. land and everything yeah, yeah. off everybody. Yeah. So 
if you're going to if you're going to pursue that at retirement option, then you need to have. I think default is to, if you're going to carry on your behavioural matrix or you know analogy through to at retirement, then you have to have a default fund, and then you have to have some really strict rules about what that default fund does and doesn't do. Yep. Mm. Okay. And, and that's the only way. And in the same way as the, as the accumulation phase, they put a charge cap on things, which we can debate about. But that you know, and we have had like a. And we have had a drive to very low cost that's gone too far the other way. Mm. But I think there are ways that you can similarly design an at retirement product that does exactly what you described, Darren. That it provides longevity protection at mm. 75, it gives you some drawdown before then. And at the same time, it's not going to cost you a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, Darren, and, we ought to probably close, shouldn't we, to keep we, our, our promises? We, we, What's we, your we, final thought? Go on, mate. Go on. No, What's no, I, I just want Charlotte to quickly come back on the um, the mix between investment and admin, because you've written a lot about um, investment, uh, mm. um, Charlotte, and I'm just interested in your view about, um, you know, our, our schemes, our, do, do, do schemes, do providers invest enough in investment, yeah, or do they need to do more of that? Um, to, to deliver their promised outcomes for members? Okay, so the answer is no. And the answer is the reason why that's a problem is because cost has become a proxy for value mm. when it comes to gaining market share. Yeah. And there are all kinds of interesting questions about that, where basically you are usually selling a DC product to, say, an HR department that doesn't understand the world of investment because it's not Pepeliwick. And so cost becomes a proxy for value. So that is really the way you have to have the fight over cost being a proxy for value and explaining to people that it isn't a proxy for value. Yeah. And and, and the role of consultants in this? Help or hinder? Uh, in my experience, most consultants I have spoken to have been strongly in favour of moving away from cost as a proxy for value. Mm. It's the pension providers that have really been driving it down to gain market share. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, because we've had different views on that, haven't we, Nico? Oh, well, that, we have, because uh, there's I also different parts. I can only tell you what parts, people tell me. There's also different parts of the of the consulting business, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So the investment consultants, I think, I fully agree, they're they're desperate to see higher prices, partly because there's a mousetrap of active management that they want to get in there and their research and all that kind of governance costs. Um, but uh, then when it goes over to the employee benefits consulting side. They might be the ones who go. Well, I can squeeze another bit out of them if if you give me the if yeah. you give me the uh, permission to go and beat them up. You know. Um, right, right, Darren. We really ought to. The cars are in the car park. The trains are in the terminal. Um, we're Let's forcing go. that guy to do his thirteenth kilometer of his run. Um, <laughs> what have you got on coming up? Um, oh, just it's still it's still August. Um, looking forward to. Um, getting back in and, and on the circuit in September. Uh, work, I think I mentioned this last week, but um, working with DG Publishing um, on their mm. private pension, private and public pension summit, uh, which takes place at Penny Hill Park on 21st to 23rd November. Um, DGpublishing.com, you can find out more there. Um, take a look at that. And thanks as usual for DG Publishing for supporting us on these podcasts. We haven't been in yep. the pod for a while, uh, but we'll be yep. back soon. 
DG Publishing in absentia. Um, so I've just agreed to do a webinar for the uh, IFOA uh, on the TCFD research I did for the DCIF. Lots and lots of acronyms there. Um, so that is the 19th of September at 10 a.m. I think we'll be going live with an event bright, so you can book a place on that um, Monday next week. So that will be like the 20th of August, 21st. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the next thing I'm working on. Um, I won't mention the IFOA and the elections. We've done enough on that, and we don't. We, we certainly have. Um, Charlotte, have you got anything you'd like to uh, mention? Yeah, so um, I mentioned before talking about sustainable investment, and I think that it's getting really interesting for sustainable asset managers out there at the moment. I mean, there are a lot of pressures on asset managers in general, and the politicization of sustainable investment is making lots of asset managers previous communication strategies look positively out of shape i would say yeah whereas you know basically for financial services a lot of the default thing is to say nothing at all and keep your head above, below the parapet and i think that's really misfiring because i think that that's a misanalysis of the risk and yeah. that by saying nothing, you can often look complicit or like you have something to hide yeah. and that can create reputational risk. So um, I would actually, you and I there and together are doing a survey where we're trying to get a better handle on if my idea is correct or not and what people are really doing around communicating sustainable investment and how clear they are about their purpose, how much is embedded in their culture, and how good they are at communicating their vision. Yeah, and um, walking the walk as well as talking the talk. Mm. Mm. Sounds yeah. very interesting. So, so we're, we're, I think we're looking to um, circulate that sometime in September, according to current plans, aren't we, Charlotte? We are indeed. Excellent. So, and if everybody's back at their desk and not not pretending to work like I am. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, so look out for that, and um, when that goes live, we'll certainly make sure we mention it on the podcast again, so people are aware of it. And I'm sure it'll be promoted on LinkedIn and places like that. Cool. Uh, another great episode, Darren. That that brings us to a close. Uh, next week we've got Paul Budgeon. Uh, Charlotte, thank you so much for being with us today. You didn't put Darren on the spot too much. I uh, very much enjoyed <laughs> your views. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Well, the thing is, um, I, I knew you'd be a challenge, Charlotte. <laughs> um, <you know. laughs> we love it. I we hope all it, yeah. of our future guests are like this. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, it would be great. And um, yeah, the, the, the next time I'm interviewing you, um, just be careful. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but brilliant episode thank you so much for joining us charlotte um always enjoy mm. chatting and it's great to um hear your views and insight in your um you know usual robust fashion <laughs> don't forget you can get in touch with us if you have any feedback any requests uh vfmpensions at gmail.com uh until next time it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and Charlotte? It's goodbye from them. It's goodbye from them. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you.